Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. This is In Search of Wisdom. I am Joshua. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Drew Mosier, the author of The Enneagram of Discernment, The Way of Vocation, Wisdom, and Practice. Drew is an Enneagram-based coach, teacher, and co-host of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. In this conversation, Drew and I discuss identity, purpose, and direction, the three lies of identity, the wisdom triad, how to think about time, past, present, and future, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Drew Mosier. Hey, Drew, thanks for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Joshua, thanks so much for having me. Good to be with you. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed exploring some of your work, the book, The Enneagram of Discernment, as well as the podcast you host, Fathom. So thank you again for being here. Hey, yeah. Looking forward to connecting and talking about the Enneagram. Should be fun. Great. To begin the conversation, I was hoping we could learn a little about you and what inspired you to write the book. Yeah. So, my entire career has been devoted to helping primarily young adults, but not exclusively young adults, explore kind of the big questions of life in hopes that they can, you know, set a good trajectory for living, you know, what which includes career and family and all sorts of other things. So, I've spent a lot of time helping them through that. And one of the things that I kept encountering in no matter what venue I was working in, whether it's a, a college environment, which is where I work now as a prof uh, at Taylor University, or in nonprofit leadership development or church ministry work, any of those things, I, I kept uh, bumping up against this issue of self-awareness. And came to this realization that uh, in order for us to be able to truly engage and encounter these big questions of life, we have to know who we are. Now, there are other things, <laughs> other elements, you know, or ingredients to that recipe, but we have to know who we are in order to have a good sense of what we're supposed to be doing. And see, back in 2009, I encountered this thing called the Enneagram. I think it was 2009. It was either 2008 or 2009, somewhere in there. When I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia, it was part of a staff development exercise uh, that we were doing. And I went into it classically, stereotypically, perhaps uh, skeptical. <laughs> okay, another personality test, you know, that's going to simplify me and peg me. And uh, so went in kind of grumpy about it and then came out kind of with my mind blown. Like uh, it, this, this tool or resource had put language to some things that um, were really true about me and resonated deeply, but I wasn't able to have kind of the language or able to articulate anyway. And so ever since I've been using it in this context of helping people discern their lives with wisdom and self-awareness is a critical component of that. So fast forward, you know, to uh, just last year and I released a book called The Enneagram of Discernment in which, which it applies this personality tool to the lens of decision-making 
in hopes that it can help us see how our personality type both helps and hinders us in our ability to make good and wise decisions. So that's that's what I that's why I wrote the book, and I hope it it can be really helpful to people as they seek to navigate those big questions in life. Well, good. I'm excited to explore it with you today. Full disclosure: your book is the first Enneagram book that I have ever read. I've I've heard about the Enneagram through the Center of Action and Contemplation for for many years, and for some reason, this was the first one that I picked up. Um, so I'm coming to this topic similar to many of the topics we cover with with curiosity and and much to learn, which may be the case for some of the listeners as well. With that in mind, maybe you could provide a, a general framework of the of the book and, and a little more background about the Enneagram. Okay, sure. Happy to do that. Yeah, so the Enneagram itself, in its kind of most basic form, is this symbol that contains a circle that has nine points on it, and those points have lines that kind of connect themselves to one another. So you have this kind of funky-looking diagram (laughs) that is essentially (laughs) known as the Enneagram. And the Enneagram that we're talking about today is really an Enneagram of, shall we say, personality, right? Now, there's all sorts of other places where people kind of use or apply this framework of nine to things, but for the most part, people apply it to this personality kind of typing system where each point represents a different type on the Enneagram. And the idea is, is that everyone has a dominant personality type. So you kind of more resonate or resonate more deeply and in a more pronounced way with one of those numbers, one of those points on the framework than the others. And so you could find, you know, I'm for for instance, just to give an example, I'm a dominant type three. And that means a whole bunch of things that we'll I'm sure we can unpack here. But it also means though that the other nine types, there are aspects of those that I resonate with, but um, they not not to the level of depth or power that the type three does. Now, the thing that kind of separates the Enneagram from some of the other personality typing systems is that the Enneagram really gets at kind of our core or internal motivations that tend to drive our thinking and our feeling and our doing, so our behavior in the world. Whereas uh, other typologies, you know, get at some of those other more external things. The Enneagram is really getting at, okay, what drives what we do in the world? What's, What's beneath the surface? And so what that means then is that you and I, Joshua, I don't know what your dominant personality type is, but uh, it came up as a nine. Nine. Okay. So you, if you uh, are a nine and I am a three, there's a very good chance we at times would be exhibiting the exact same behaviors in our lives, but the Enneagram would help us unpack and explore the why behind it. And the why would be different for you and for me because of our personality type. Each type has this kind of core driver motivation that really serves as kind of the engine for how we live and move in the world. So that's kind of the Enneagram in a nutshell. There's a lot more to say about it because it's it's equally really simple. It's also infinitely complex as well. So in the book, what I do is I kind of introduce the Enneagram. So um, I'm really thankful to hear like someone like you pick it. This is the first book you picked up. Uh, That's not the case for many, but I I, I did want to make sure and tend to kind of the introductory content to make sure that people could pick it up and know what the Enneagram is. 
And then um, what I do is I go into a framework of discernment that it, that I call the way of discernment that really explores nine questions grouped into kind of three different triads or categories, which the Enneagram itself also is is often kind of explored and studied and understood in different groups of three. So I'm kind of playing with that inherent logic a little bit. And then what I do is I talk about how each of the nine personality types kind of has a different journey through these nine questions. Some things we tend, each type tends to focus on more intently or with more focus and sometimes at the expense of other questions. While these nine questions in the way that's of discernment aren't necessarily an exhaustive list or even a formula for discernment, I think by tending to the nine questions, it helps us maybe shore up some of the weaker parts of our personalities. In in so doing, I would argue, cultivates more wisdom to make better decisions. So that's that's the, the book in a nutshell. Yeah. No, I love it. That's a great framework and excited to maybe start right at the very beginning. I love the question that you pose there, this is not who I am and in kind of the context around that coming up with people. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So what I do is I, I start the book by chronicling some of the more public kind of celebrity uh, foibles <laughs> or, or falls from grace, so to speak. And what I do is I, I find a common theme or thread in all of these scenarios in which, you know, a prominent celebrity or public figure will make a mistake and a PR, they'll probably hire some sort of PR firm that will coach them to say some version of, this is not who I am. Meaning this, this thing I did that is abhorrent or just awful, distasteful, is not representative of who I truly am. And, and so I talk about, okay, we, we all look at that and kind of roll our eyes and say, that's a terrible apology, right? <laughs> and it's really hard to completely divorce the things that we do that we that are embarrassing from who we truly are, right? It's not so clean cut. Uh, but at the same time, there is some truth to that, right? We are not our worst mistakes. And I think the Enneagram also, in sort of a somewhat parallel way, can help us see that our personality is not truly who we are. It is an important part of who we are, but it's not the totality of who we are, right? And the way in which we tend to kind of project ourselves to the world and experience the world and interact with the world is a really important aspect of us, but it's not, it's not fully us, right? There's more to us than just our personality. And so that's what I get into there as, as a starting point for the Enneagram, because I think a danger with working with a personality system like the Enneagram is to reduce ourselves, our full selves to this one number, right? Or to this one type. And in so doing, we lose a lot of our kind of fullness and wholeness in the process. Great start to the book and such an important point that you highlight there. One of the things I like about the Kindle version of books is you can see what others have highlighted. And one of the things that was highlighted, I, I think, 60 some times is the human experience is full of dissonance, where our behaviors seem mismatched with who we want to be. We seem to know that to be true in our guts, and, and so many people are highlighting that. Why is it so difficult, do you think, in it to find alignment? Yeah, yeah, that's, oh, that's, a, that's a great question. I think a few things uh, come to mind. 
first, we live in a world which is full of brokenness and suffering and difficulty and pain and struggle, which means the things that we truly want, even if they are good, are not always available to us, right? Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. And uh, that causes us, I think, to cope and respond in ways that sometimes are really beautiful and redemptive and powerful and other ways are less than best, right? <laughs> and they're just not the ways in which we should respond. And we can, we can probably all think of those experiences where, hey, I, I wish I could have had a do-over with this, whatever this is, right? And thankfully for, you know, guys like you and me, we're not massive celebrities and, you know, and don't have people following us all the time waiting for us to trip, you know, over ourselves and then laugh at us in the process, right? I also think too, and this is where I think the Enneagram can be really helpful here, is it helps us identify kind of this core motivation that is really good, that really drives our personality in some key ways, but it also identifies the ways in which we think, okay, we either don't deserve it, what that which we truly want, even if it's good, or um, it's been taken from us or, you know, any number of things. And so we decide to settle for less than what we truly want in hopes that we'll just kind of temporarily uh, scratch the itch, so to speak, of our internal world. And in so doing, we end up kind of overdoing certain aspects of our personality and kind of falling into habitual patterns that sometimes aren't good for us, right? And I think this is where we get at some of the complexity of the Enneagram. We can easily find some ways in which our personality type is truly helpful to us and, and provides and affords us some strengths that we bring to our work, to our family life, to our community life, whatever it may be, and we can be really thankful for those. But we also can find some ways in which our personality type kind of hinders us and causes us to make mistakes. You know, I'm kind of reminded of, oh, I can't even remember who told me this. I, I didn't come up with this. I'll just say that. But, you know, this idea that uh, you're all just fine, you know, we're all just fine, but we could use some help, right? And I think that's what we're getting at here, <laughs> you know? And I think there's wisdom in that, in both accepting who we are and also realizing we also need some help. So I, I think that's what we're getting at here, that dissonance that is part of the human experience. It's part of what it means to be human on this planet, for better or worse. Yeah. No, that's great. And that's a, a great transition to this first triad, the vocation triad. I'm a big fan of, of good questions, these, these philosophical questions, which I, I think you're using a few of them here. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Could you walk us through these questions and provide some thoughts on on their importance? Yeah, I'd love to. So I think discernment, any sort of discernment journey, especially as it, it's applied to some sort of complex or difficult decision, needs to have an element of vocation. And by vocation, I mean calling. So I don't just reduce vocation to work or your job, although I think that's an important part, can be an important part of one's vocation, but I mean a sense of calling. And depending on the audience, right, some will interpret that as calling from God. Some will interpret that as sort of an internal sense of meaning, an external sense of purpose, or all the above, right? But I think regardless of where you kind of orient yourself with this idea of calling, I think we all perpetually wrestle with these three questions. The first being, who am I? This is the question of identity, right? 
Um, and then the second being, why am I here? This is the question of purpose. And the third, where am I going? This is the question of direction. And I think anytime we're kind of facing a complex decision, a proverbial fork in the road, so to speak, I think we need to remind ourselves of these, these three questions, not because they'll kind of magically elicit the answer that we're looking for with 100% clarity, but because they provide kind of a, a deepening and grounding effect to this momentary decision that we're making. And uh, they kind of place this one decision in a larger context, a larger framework of identity, purpose, and direction. And uh, I think in our personalities, I think we're prone to sometimes short circuit or shortcut these questions, right? Because either they don't seem pragmatic to us or we don't have good answers, right? Who am I? Question of identity. Uh, depending on how much sleep we've had, that could cause an existential crisis, right? <laughs> and, um, and so I don't, I don't mean to do that, right? But I do mean to, okay, who... Who am I trying to be, right? And maybe that's another angle on the question. What is the, t what is the identity that I want to be and to live into, right? And I think that can help us make sense of these uh, many decisions that make up a life, right? Or why am I here? What is my deeper kind of sense of purpose? And how does this decision fit into that, right? And I don't mean to have um, that everyone has to have, you know, like a purpose statement on their mirror, you know, or something. But I think, does this align with the way in which I want to live my life, right? The purposes that I am devoting myself to in this life. And, you know, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes by the writer Annie Dillard. You know, how, how I spend my days is, of course, how I spend my life, right? And so often, you know, we don't think of the things that we spend our time doing and the decisions we make in the grander scheme of life, right? But if we stop and consider that the way in which we're kind of devoting our time and energy and attention in any given day over time adds up to the life that we're living, it helps with perspective, right? And then in terms of this, where am I going direction? It, and what I mean by direction is really this sense of trajectory, right? And so because discernment is far more of a process than it is a destination, but that process sets trajectories, right? And uh, I think this can be easily illustrated by, you know, I live in central Indiana. If I get on a plane headed towards New York City and the pilot decides to point the nose of the plane, you know, two degrees south of where he should, I'm not going to end up in New York City, Right. <laughs> I'm going to end up in south of there by quite a bit, actually. And th but that two degrees makes a huge difference, right? And I think considering our many decisions in terms of the trajectory that it will set in the here and now can be really helpful. Even if, you know, every, and we don't have all the facts and information before us, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but these three questions can be a good start. And a question around integrating these three questions in everyday life, I guess, if you will. A concept that has come up in a couple past episodes is this living with a question, you know, dancing with it over over time, if you will. How, how do you kind of implement these questions in your life? So I think I, I, think I live with the questions in a few ways. Um, one is, in many ways, acknowledging that living with the question is better than probably trying to frantically find a quick answer, right? 
And so I think the temptation here, especially for me, historically, has been, uh, who am I? I got to find the answer to that. Why am I here? I got to find the answer to that. Where am I going? I got to find the answer to that. As opposed to, no, sitting with those questions in the context of this decision that I'm trying to make actually not only helps me make a better decision, but actually helps me more deeply explore the questions and live with them, you know, throughout the balance of my life. And so, and, um, you know, these are, these are questions that are so rich and deep that we should be scared and afraid if we get a quick answer, right? And this is kind of the evergreen work that I think we're called to that goes kind of deeper and uh, reaches far uh, more widely than circumstantial aspects of our life, right? Like deciding if I want to buy this house or this house, that's an important decision, right? But I'm not going to sufficiently and definitively answer that the question of identity, the question of purpose, and the question of direction by choosing the right house, right? But by considering those questions in the midst of the decision, I think I'm going to make a better decision and I'm going to continue to explore in ways that form me, my identity, purpose, and direction. Does that make sense? Definitely. And you share some wisdom here from Henry Nouwen of these, the three lies of identity. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others say about me. Any thoughts on loosening the grip on some of those questions, or I guess avoiding some of those. Right. And so I think, well, that in, in some ways makes my point <laughs> in that I, I am what I do is a cheap answer to identity, right? And one that will, if we're being honest, um, sages the world over have told us is going to lead to discontent, Right. We are not what we do. We are not human do- doings. We are human beings, right? So I am what I have and I am what others say about me. And so I think these are definitive statements that kind of externalize a lot of our vocation, a lot of aspects of our vocation, as opposed to um, internalize maybe a deeper and more abiding sense of identity, purpose, and direction. I think that's what I'm trying to get at in the book is because I think the Enneagram also has has a similar tension to it. And, you know, our personalities often want to kind of externalize these aspects of who we are and try to make sense of them as opposed to finding them within, right? Which is really what the kind of the settling statements that I offer in the book are about. In the wisdom triad, you write how love is core to how we know and, and love and knowledge in this close relationship how can the three questions in this chapter help us along that path, I guess? Yeah. And so I think what I try to do, and, and that really serves as kind of a, a bridging concept from the vocation triad, which I think has to contend with loving and accepting who we are in the pursuit of you know living a life <laughs> in some ways. And in the way in which we pursue a good life, in that context of loving ourselves and others well is I think cultivating wisdom. And so in this kind of second triad of the way of discernment, I offer three questions that I think form this kind of cultivation of wisdom. Uh, The first is what am I doing? 
this really explores and looks at our activity in the world and see if it aligns with, you know, the life we want to live. The second then is what am I feeling, which really uh, explores our kind of emotional world and searches for wisdom to kind of mine and glean from it. And then the third is what am I thinking, you know, which is often where we kind of start and end, right? Which is what are my thoughts on this? But this really gets at kind of the ways in which our mind and our brain help us make sense of and interpret and analyze and synthesize, you know, the, the information that, that comprises a life. So um, what I do in, in, in this chapter is look at more intently and explicitly the aspects of the nine personality types and look at some of the ways in which each type tends to focus on one of those questions supported by another and then often at the expense or neglect of a third question. And, and so what I'm doing essentially is promoting this idea that wisdom is kind of a three-legged stool, you know, that we need, we need our IQ, we need our EQ, and, you know, to finish the metaphor, even though it breaks down a little bit, our gut quotient, you know, we need, we need uh, the, the intelligence that our body and our activity brings kinesthetically, right, in order to make really good decisions. And in fact, we're kind of wired to do that. But our personality tends to kind of fixate on one of those questions somewhat supported by another and we tend to misuse or neglect the third and that's to our own detriment any thoughts on when we find ourselves maybe fixated loosening the the grip yeah so what i what i do in the book is i i kind of talk about how each type contends with this triad these three questions and make the case that hey you know for instance i'll give my my own type as an example here to to kind of illustrate this. Uh, I, as a dominant type three, um, I tend to neglect the question, what am I feeling? Right? And I tend to just think and do, think and do, think and do, right? And because threes are known as being efficient, they're productive, they're achievement oriented, and often feelings are, uh, feel like a drag, you know? Uh, they feel like a weight that's kind of holding me back but that's at my own expense, right? And and that actually, in the long run, causes more harm than it does good. You know, in the moment, if I can push aside my feelings, I can get something done, right? But over the long run, that's not a good strategy. And so what I do is I, I offer kind of two sets of practices and postures that I recommend for each type. And so for the three, um, I offer cultivating wise hearts as one way to kind of go at this or where I need to focus more intently on my emotional world and on my feelings and, and in hopes of being able to connect more at emotional levels with others and not just for my own kind of strategy and gain, right? And climbing whatever ladder is in front of me. And also to better understand my own kind of inner emotional world and maybe have a longer list and a wider range of emotions in, that I can name as opposed to I'm mad or I'm happy or, you know, <laughs> some of those things. And then the other set of practices, it would be sacred delay for me, where I need to slow down and reflect. And in so doing, this pairs well with the wise heart, cultivating a wise heart, because it by slowing down and reflecting and looking back, which is something I'm not prone to do, it allows my heart to catch up with my head you know, and my body. 
And in many, and so each type has its own kind of mix of these uh, different kind of postures and practices that I offer based on the question that they tend to neglect or misuse. And so uh, the goal is not to perpetually, with all your energy, you know, focus on these three questions at all times, but rather to develop kind of healthy rhythms of considering and sitting with these questions. Because in our default settings of our personality, we're more likely just to kind of run with one or two of them. Definitely. Out of curiosity in, in your experience, and you've, you've been at this a, a long time studying this, is this seen as some of the, the deep work? I know it's all you, you kind of preface that it's, it's a bit of a lifelong thing. Is this some of the more challenging work there? Oh, absolutely. So, and this is kind of one of the fundamental principles of the Enneagram is that you have your dominant personality type for your life, right? And so you don't essentially ascend your way out of a type because all the types are equal anyway, <laughs> and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. And so this is your dominant personality type. And in many ways, it's kind of hardwired in through some sort of blend of nature and nurture, right? And so what that means then is that that personality type is with you for better or worse for your life, which means that the work required to be a healthy version of that type, which is the goal, is going to be lifelong. Or I, I refer to it kind of as evergreen. <laughs> I think that's a, maybe a little better spin on it um, because it can seem uh, in kind of darker moments, it can seem to people as like a terminal sentence, right? Like I cannot get away from kind of the pitfalls of my type. When in fact, that's not the point, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, or fortunately, right? The point is rather to to learn how to be a healthier version of your personality so that it doesn't kind of continue to run in its default settings in such a way that you continue to live the exact same, you know, in which you have these certain set of strengths that work for you and you continue to trip over yourself in your own front lawn, you know, over and over again for the rest of your life. And we can, we can certainly work with our personality type in really profound ways. And, uh, but it will be for the balance of our life. Well, that, that's a good transition to my favorite chapter around time, this, the practice triad. Could you kind of give a basic framework here and maybe touch on the three questions that you use? Yeah. So then this third triad of the way of discernment, I call the practice triad. And what I mean is the practice in time triad, where I look at this kind of interesting, fascinating notion of time and how we have this kind of three perspective view on time of past, present, and future. And think, and I make the case that there's some connections with our personality that are, can be really helpful and profound for us. And what I mean by that is that based on our type, we tend to either be future-focused, present-focused, or past-focused. And often our kind of focus on one perspective on time just like we talked about in the wisdom triad, comes at the expense of another, right? So we kind of have this stacking of our preferred or dominant perspective on time supported by another and often at the expense of or neglect of a third. And good practice for us is to live in what I call is the fullness of time, which I'm drawing from a ancient Greek and uh, Christian New Testament concept there, the fullness of time which allows us to kind of draw more from a deeper well than just 
maybe what we're kind of used to doing. So again, to use me as an example here, as a dominant type three, I, I'm future focused, supported by the present. So what that means is I'm present enough to get to the next thing, right? And so I've got my to-do list, which is really important to me. Uh, and I'm, I'm working on this one thing, but my tendency is to think about, okay, what's next, right? And so with left unchecked, I could be, you know, in this interview with you and but also thinking about, okay, what do I have after this? How do I get, you know, what am I going to do when I get to that? You know, and, and in so doing, I'm distracted, right? And what comes at the expense of this is the past. Like I, I in my personality type, I tend to neglect or want to ignore the past. It's ancient history. It doesn't help me in any sort of practical way get done what I want to get done. And so I will ignore it. And so each type has its own kind of combination of these three. And this is where I, I bring in this set of practices I, I talked about in Sacred Delay before, where those types that are future types need to practice in time Sacred Delay. We're intentional, kind of slowing down, pausing, looking back, right? Or, and some types need to uh, develop habits and practices around Sacred Vision. Where they struggle to look ahead. And they can never kind of get out of the, what I call the tyranny of the urgent, you know, where they're just playing, their life seems like this perpetual game of whack-a-mole, you know, at the arcade where another one pops up, I got to hit it down and, and they can never get away from it, right? And then other types, and this is where the nine would fall, would be to, to develop sacred presence or how, to, how, to, how do we develop ways in which we can be fully in our full selves here in the here and now to what matters most. And so each type has its own kind of journey with time. And I think good discernment comes from living in the fullness of time. And how would you define good discernment? Mm. So very simply in the book, in the very beginning, I call it applied identity (laughs) in that. And what I mean by that is that we are living from an authentic sense of self and making decisions accordingly, right? And I, I don't necessarily mean I'm just going to live my truth necessarily, or I'm thinking about something deeper where we have a kind of deep and rooted and grounded sense of who we are truly, which incorporates our personality, but isn't kind of reduced to it and are making decisions accordingly. Right. And I think, and, and I also talk and unpack this idea of discernment. I think it's a gift and a practice. So I think it's something that we can probably all speak to times where we had, um, you know, it, whether or not you believe in divine inspiration or just moments of clarity, right? Where we just made a good decision and we thought, wow, how I didn't have all the information, but I made a really great decision. I'm so thankful for that, right? It's a gift, but it's also something that we can cultivate over time, right? By Otherwise, I wouldn't have written the book. <laughs> but And I also think it's a process, not a destination. I talked about that. And I think uh, good discernment is often it's it's best used and stewarded towards complex decisions, right? Where we don't have all the answers before us, we can't see all the implications, but we can kind of through the circumstantial, we can see beneath and through and and see the big picture. And I think that's discernment, where we can see how this complex decision, this one decision, fits into this larger kind of view that we have of life. And that's what I mean by beneath and through, as opposed to sometimes all we can see is, a, oh, this is going to be difficult for a minute, or, oh, this is going to be really beneficial for the next month, right? Or something like that, as opposed to seeing the larger picture. Yeah, that's really good. The beneath and, and through definitely resonated. 
you write about minutes versus moments. I was wondering if you could touch on that. Yeah, so this is where I'm more in the practice of time and looking at time. I think a more modern Western notion of time. We have uh, what the ancient Greeks would call chronos time, which is where we get the term chronology or chronological, which is really minutes, right? It's it's that which can be measured kind of mathematically, right? Or kind of kept on a watch or by a clock or a timer. And, you know, these are very finite. You know, they, you know, we have only so minutes and so many minutes in a day and every minute is 60 seconds long, right? And that's just that's, we've accepted that, right? Where moments, I think differently about. I think moments can have much more kind of spacious and deep meaning to them. And this is where the ancient Greeks had a term for this that we don't really have necessarily in our kind of modern English, which is kairos time. And it really derives from this uh, archery or this archery imagery in which the archer, when they pull back the string and study the bow and aim the arrow. And it's that opportune moment right before they release, right? And, and, and so Kairos is really more about opportunity, uh, paradigm shifting, deep meaning. And we can probably all think of times in our lives in which we had kind of really pivotal Kairos moments where things changed for us significantly, right? Now, these happen in Kronos time, right? These happen inside of, you know, the, the way in which we measure time and, you know, we can kind of even uh, pinpoint timestamps which, in which important things happened. But there's something deeper going on here is what I'm getting at. And that these Kairos moments are significant and have impact far beyond, you know, the seconds that they represent, right, chronologically. And I think this is where the realm of wisdom and discernment really flourishes. When we cultivate more uh, kind of kairos moments in our lives through wisdom and discernment, and as opposed to, you know, maybe just running in the default settings of our personality and just living, letting our uh, iCal calendars live our lives, for instance, (laughs) would be an example of just living in the, the chronos minutes that we have, right? And so it's really a way in which to look at how we kind of live in and steward time differently than just, okay, what's next on my calendar? Oh, that's great. I really enjoyed that chapter and something that is not always uh, touched on. We, we really scratched the surface. I'm looking at the time and it's really, really flown by. Is there anything before we transition to some wrap-up questions that we didn't get to that we, we should really highlight? Yeah, I think maybe just a kind of a summative statement of sorts that, you know, this, so we've kind of gone through an overview or a survey of these nine questions on the way of discernment. And, and what I do in the book is I really, I, I devote the first part of the book, the first four chapters to kind of unpacking this, this journey, this way of discernment. And then part two of the book is I look at each of the personality types on their own, chapter by chapter in their own journey with these nine questions. And I think it's worth stating that I think each of the types has a different kind of default experience with these nine questions, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? And I think there is, uh, I think, more in store than the typical kind of default 
ways we make decisions. And I think our personalities offer some great resources and tools for us in our decision making. Every type does, but also some blinders and some things that you know we tend not to focus on or, or tend to in order to make those good decisions. And so I think the goal is not to kind of rid ourselves of our personalities. In fact, I think that's impossible. <laughs> but is is how do we work with it well, right? How do we work with it within a fuller sense of who we are? And I think that's where wisdom lies. I love it. And I was really impressed how exhaustive each of those chapters are. For someone that may not be aware of, of what their particular type is, where do you traditionally point people? Yeah. And, you know, this is interesting because the Enneagram is open source, right? So no one owns it, which means there's a lot of different ways to encounter it. And some of this is dependent upon how you learn best about yourself. For some, taking a test is helpful, although they're not foolproof, right? I would recommend the tests. Um, the, the one that I tend to use is called the Ready. So it's the Rizzo Hudson Enneagram Type Indicator. It can be a helpful kind of tool in the toolkit for learning your type, but it's not definitive, right? So that can be a helpful one for people who kind of like that. Uh, another, if, if, your audience, if your readers pick up a book, like if you pick up the Enneagram of Discernment or another Enneagram book and read about the types, there's a few <laughs> kind of cheeky tips that I give. The one that seems that you read or hear about that sounds most unfair, chances are it might be your type. <laughs> or or uh, I've heard other teachers uh, refer to it as the one that makes you want to throw the book across the room <laughs> because it's resonating with you at that kind of deep core level. You know, another one for the, kind of the music lovers, um, Ryan O'Neill, who plays music under the, the moniker Sleeping at Last, has an Enneagram album in which he devotes an entire one song to each of the types. And they're really profound and really well done. And what I often will tell people to do is, hey, listen to those songs with the lyrics readily available to you. The one that makes you cry might be your type. The one that makes you, if they all make you cry, then the one that makes you ugly cry might, might be your type. <laughs> that can be helpful. Oh, or, and you know, another method is just to go to a workshop and learn from a teacher who knows their stuff, right? And who knows what they're talking about, who's well-trained and knows how to communicate the Enneagram in ways that resonate uh, deeply and, and communicate effectively. So there's a myriad of ways. Those would be some that I'd offer. Yeah. Great. I appreciate that. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. You've been exploring this for quite some time, if, if I've heard correctly, over, over a decade now. Is there anything that you're still scratching your head about in curiosity? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think there's so many things. There's a lot of, you know, which we didn't even really get into much. I do get into some of these in the book, but there's a lot of different kind of triadic groupings of the nine types. And uh, there's a whole host of them that I'd love to learn about and explore more deeply. So in addition to, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of the traditional triads, which tend to be which kind of center of intelligence on the Enneagram you tend to lead with the most. There's the stances, which I talk about quite a bit. I've spent a lot of time in those. But there's some other ones, you know, that have to do with that kind of pair really well with psychological attachment theory, <laughs> which can be really interesting. I'm also really intrigued by how personality, the role that personality plays, uh, both on kind of a phenomenological level, so the way in which we experience our world, 
and what role, if any, it has to play in our kind of ontological life. So um, how does it, to what extent should it have a say in our sense of being, you know, in the world? And uh, I think that's a fundamental question, right? Um, which we, you know, would be a whole nother hour to probably even scratch the surface on. But so, yeah, there's a lot. There's an Enneagram teacher by the name of Suzanne Stabile, who's been studying this for far longer than I have. And I heard her once say, you know, I've been studying this for decades and I still haven't found the bottom of it. <laughs> so, and I think that that's true. Um, there's a lot there to continue to unpack and learn about. For someone listening, looking for a small step or, or practice from the book, anything come to mind as a starting point? Yeah. So I think, and some of this is really type dependent. So I'll give a more a generic kind of practice that I think would be helpful. Develop ways in which you can be more kind and honest to yourself and notice how and why you tend to do the things you do in terms of how you respond to others and how you tend to engage your world. And so um, taking stock of the day can be a really helpful way to do that. At the end of a day, if you can kind of look back and spend some time reflecting on the day and asking, okay, why did I respond this way? Or why did I engage this person this way? With kindness, not with, you know, heaps of critical judgment, I think can be a really helpful practice to build into greater self-awareness. And then I think the other, uh, another practice that I'd highly recommend is reminding yourself, and this can kind of be kind of an internal mantra that when you're encountering others <laughs> that don't assume that they are in, engaging this, the world the same way that you are, right? And I think that is kind of the lie sometimes that we take from personality is that this is how we kind of live in and experience the world, therefore everyone else does as well, and that's not the case, which is why we get tripped up so often, right, with others. And that uh, just that simple acknowledgement that others are kind of experiencing this world differently than us can be really helpful in cultivating maybe some compassion and empathy and just understanding as opposed to just frustration and <laughs> getting annoyed <laughs> with others when they don't act the same way that we do or think the same way that we do. I love it. And I want to highlight one thing that's written in the uh, final chapter of the book, don't be afraid of work that has no end. So love it. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, The Enneagram of Discernment. Check out the podcast, Fathoms. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in learning more about your work? Yeah, so I, I'm trying to do something on Instagram, that's a little different than all the listicles <laughs> and simplistic takes on, you know, your the best smoothie for your Enneagram type or whatever. <laughs> and, and that handle is at Enneagrammers. So you can find me there. I also have a website that I've just launched called, uh, which is kind of the, the company that I'm, I run related to my Enneagram teaching, consulting, training, and coaching. And, and that company is called Type Trail. And so that website is typetrail.co. You can find me there and connect with me there if you like. Oh, also, uh, if you anywhere you listen to podcasts, just search for Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast, and you'll find uh, the work that I do there with my co-hosts. And we try to um, go a little deeper in the podcasting landscape on the Enneagram than just kind of the introductory stuff. So if if that is of interest to you, then check us out. 
Great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. So definitely check it out. Drew Mosier, I thank you for your time today. This has been a pleasure. Joshua, thanks so much. Appreciate the questions and I've loved this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.